Now, I don't know if you've seen, but over the last week, the GDP figures for the UK have come out. But on the back of that, there's been quite a lot of comment about how relevant, or um, maybe not, GDP is today. The Guardian, for example, had an article saying that the UK should stop obsessing over GDP, gross domestic product, and well-being is more telling. And so this was a push for us to measure our general sense of how a society is going, not by just economic figures alone, but instead by well-being. Now, well-being is measured with 43 different indicators, but large part amongst those different economic and social indicators, a big part of it is how happy we are. Back in 2010, um, Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, made a big push for us to make a lot more of our happiness in society and not be quite so obsessed with just the economic output and outlook. Now, I don't know where you stand on that, but it certainly reflects a big trend in Western society that happiness is seen as arguably the most important thing. Think of a really simple but very, very profound thing like how we greet one another. Not so long ago, in fact, some of you may remember this, the standard greeting, certainly in the UK, would be to say, I wish you a good day. It sounds quite outdated now, doesn't it? How do we greet one another now? How are you? Now, isn't that quite telling? As though the primary thing we want to know of every social interaction is your level of happiness. And some of you I know, when I've talked to about this, find that quite difficult because, of course, particularly amongst um, some, of the, uh, some of us Brits, we don't want full vulnerability, so maybe you're not that happy, and it's not really a genuine invitation for you to divulge the full state of your emotional health, is it? But you don't want to lie, so what do you say? The standard answer, I'm fine. You know, kind of fair to middling, a little bit like the weather we've been enjoying recently. But despite all of this great desire for happiness in Western society, Despite the fact that arguably it is the most important thing for most people in Western society, a thing we invest billions of pounds in trying to obtain, a thing we now measure and try to measure very, very accurately, it is nonetheless elusive for many if the sociologists and the reports are to be believed. How do we actually get happiness? We want it. We seek to measure it. We invest huge amounts of money in it. But how do we get it? That is one of the big questions. And it is actually one of the focuses of our passage today. I wonder if you saw um, there, we're focusing particularly on these couple of verses at the end of our reading, verse 8 and 9 in 1 Peter chapter 1, as we go through almost verse by verse in this first chapter of 1 Peter. And look at what he says in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, that is Jesus Christ and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is wanting to show us how we get something even better than happiness, joy. Not just any old joy, but an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is something that is richer and deeper and more permanent and more satisfying than even happiness, as wonderful as happiness is. And he writes to tell the believers then and also us today how you get that. Now, just let me give a bit of a, a way of um, recap so that you can know where we're up to in 1 Peter, because I'm conscious with some guests here today, we're diving kind of in the midst of it. Uh, Peter is writing about AD 60, AD 62. He's writing himself from Rome, which he refers to when he calls it Babylon later in the letter. And he's writing to Christians, as he says, right at the top of the page in 1 Peter chapter 1, who he calls God's elect, that is people chosen by God, 
but their experience of living in the Greco-Roman world was to be exiles. That is, they, they feel like foreigners. They feel like strangers. They never quite fit in because the norms and the values and the way of living that Jesus Christ calls them to are at big, big odds with the Greco-Roman world around them. And so in the light of that, they are facing trials, all kinds of trials, as he says in verse 6. And his great concern, as he says right at the end of the letter, is that they would stand firm, that he would encourage them so they stand firm. That is, they don't change or don't try to adapt the norms of Jesus Christ just because it's difficult. And so he writes in chapter 1, verse 13, which is his first command in the letter. Look down with it, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, how do you stand firm? Well, only if you have a hope that is more important to you and more real to you than the difficulties you're facing, can you stand firm in the midst of the difficulties you are facing? And how do you set your hope on Jesus Christ? Well, verse 6, rejoice. You rejoice in him. Joy is the thing that makes the future hope real in the now. It's what makes it experiential. It's what gives it vibrancy. And then, of course, the question comes, well, how do I rejoice? How do I experience that joy? And we saw it last week as he started in verses um, 7 and following, and we're going to continue this week, as we see a number of things about this joy. First of all, we're going to see what the object of this true joy, this true happiness is. Then we're going to see the end result of this joy. And lastly, we're going to see the nature of this joy. So let's look firstly, in our first point, at the object of this true joy. That is, what is the focus of this true joy? If you want joy, how do you get it? Well, you've got to focus on the right thing. And what is the right thing? Verse 8, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Notice four times we get him. Jesus Christ is the object, the one we should focus on. The person is a relationship with him that ultimately brings about true joy. And Peter is saying, to the extent that you set your hearts and your minds on him, you will start to experience joy. Now, I think this is hugely significant for us, particularly in Western society, because we are told instead that um, the thing that is going to give us joy is circumstances. But the problem, as we'll see, is that circumstances aren't very secure. So just consider, by contrast, the security of this true joy, the security of Jesus Christ, in contrast to the insecurity of circumstances. This is the great enlightenment, the great late modern endeavor. Get the right circumstances, achieve the right things, amass the right amount of possessions and the right social network in the right job, have the right life partner, get all of those things in the right way, the type of things that the glossy magazines put in front of us, get those, and then you'll be happy, we are told. But the problem is, is those things are just so insecure, aren't they? I know that many of us here are deeply invested in that project. Some of us have got those things and are starting, or maybe have already experienced, that when you get them, it doesn't actually bring you the happiness you long for. Others of us here are telling ourselves and our friends that the problem with my life is I don't have those things. And if just God would give me them, then I would be happy. But my friends, they're just far too insecure for them to be the source of true joy. I mean, it is not abnormal in life that things go wrong, is it? Unfortunately, this side of the new creation, it is the normal. You don't get the circumstances you long for. 
If you say, if only I'm healthy and I feel good about my body and my appearance, then I will be happy. What happens when you grow old and time starts to take its toll? You don't just lose a bit of hair, for some of us, or your physical aptitude. Actually, you start to lose your joy, your happiness. What about if you say, well, if I get this career, or if I get this job, or if I'm in this type of employment, and I feel this sense of self-worth, then I'll be happy. What happens if, as so many people have experienced in the last few years, you lose your job? You haven't just lost your job, have you? You've lost your happiness. Or you say, my social network, or my peer group, or the approval of my friends and family, that's where I'll find happiness. And you invest deeply in it, and it feels good when people are speaking well of you, but then something happens and someone unfriends you on Facebook. Of course, you never get told by Facebook. You just look over the number of friends you've got and you feel that the number's gone down. And some of you watch that number far too much. And when that number goes down, your happiness goes down. It is far too insecure. But consider, by contrast, the security of Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. Look at what we're told about him in verse 4. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. He is the one in whom we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That means that not even death can take a relationship with him away. And verse 5, he is the one who shields us through faith until we see him face to face. So God is protecting us for that relationship, and death can't take away that relationship. Is there anything more secure? The security of Jesus Christ in comparison to the insecurity of the world. Not only is Jesus Christ infinitely secure, he will never be taken away from those who trust him, but also he is infinitely wonderful. Jesus Christ is infinitely wonderful. Consider that all of the things that we look for in this life are in fact gifts given by him. Now you get this in general life. Is not the person who gives you a gift generally more praiseworthy than the gift itself? Is not the artist more praiseworthy than the artwork? Uh, let's imagine a, a thought experiment that you, uh, you had the opportunity to go and meet someone who you greatly admire, maybe a musician, um, maybe someone of classical musical, like um, let's say Mozart was alive and you can go and meet him, maybe someone today to uh, Rihanna or Bono, whoever it is that you love their music, and you could go and meet that person, but as you walked into the room, their music was playing. What would it be like if you ignored them and just said, no, no, please don't interrupt me, I just want to listen to your music? Would that not be bizarre? Or let's say a famous sports star, someone you greatly admire and you, you've wanted to meet for years, Serena Williams or Lionel Messi, whoever it may be. And you have the opportunity to meet them. And as you walk into the room, their highlights reel is playing on a video, but they're standing right there. And you say, no, I don't want to meet you. I just want to watch the highlights reel. How bizarre. Because the person who gets those things or who achieves those things, the artist is more praiseworthy than the artwork. We know that. And yet so many of us here say we love Jesus and we're obsessed about his gifts. We pray for his gifts, but we ignore him? Is he not more wonderful than anything this world can offer? Just think about him for a moment. Think of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look at him in the pages of the New Testament, he never turns away the poor or the vulnerable. They flock to him because they saw in him and met in him an acceptance they longed for and had never met before. Think of the gentleness of Jesus Christ, that a bruised reed he would never break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. Think of the courage and the bravery of Jesus Christ, who faces the greatest evils this world has ever known as he walks unflinchingly to the cross 
and says, death and evil do your worst, I will take it. Think of the mercy of Jesus Christ, who offers the hand of forgiveness like drops of dew from heaven for every person who will come to him and say, Lord, I've done wrong. He turns away no sinner. He never has. He never will. And think of the love of Jesus Christ, the one who is prepared to die for you, for me, even when we were his enemies, his steadfast love that can never be taken away. This is him, the one of whom Scripture says he is the pearl of great price. Is he not more glorious, more wonderful than anything this world has to offer? No wonder Scripture calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He should be first in your heart, and if you want joy, make him first in your heart, and you will find it. The object of true joy, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Let's think secondly about the end result of true joy, the end result of true joy. We're looking at verse 9 here. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I've been grappling with this verse over the course of the week, particularly trying to work out um, whether this verse is saying that the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls, is something that causes us true joy, so another reason to give us joy, or whether or not it is the case that as we have joy, that results in the salvation of our souls as we keep enduring. The problem is, is that in the original, verse 9, there's no for you are, there's just receiving. And so the receiving could be another reason for joy, or it could be the result of joy. And I've been battling backwards and forwards. Now, I think both are true. It is both true that as we rejoice in Jesus Christ, that causes us to endure and to obtain this salvation by grace. It is also true that that future salvation is a wonderful motive for joy. But I think ultimately it's the motive that is being focused on here. Why do I say that? Well, because it comes up a few times in 1 Peter. So just flick forward to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Peter has such a future focus on the return of Jesus Christ that he points to it a number of times in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He writes, Live such good lives among the pagans, that is the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's not God popping in for a cup of tea. That's a Greek word that means the day he comes back to gather in all of his people, to protect them and to take them with him into the new creation. So he says there's a powerful motive to live good lives now that Jesus is coming back. God himself is coming back to gather us to himself. Flick forward again to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, just over the, pen, over the page. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When his glory is revealed is when he is revealed, when we see him face to face. We do not see him now. We trust in him, but we will see him one day. And he says, look forward to that day, that future joyous day when you see him and therefore keep going in the sufferings you face now. And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, just on the next paragraph, verse 4 of chapter 5. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So do you see how Peter sows in his letter this future joy, this end result of your faith and your salvation? The thing that will give you great joy. And of course that makes sense because if Jesus Christ is the object of his joy, what will be the most joyous day? Well, it'll be the day when you finally see him face to face. For now we see in part, we know something of him. It is substantial, but it is impartial. It's not yet full. We don't know everything about Jesus Christ. We don't see him face to face. But then, at that day, we will see Jesus face to face. And notice as you come back to chapter 1, come back with me to chapter 1. Notice that this isn't just, and we must get this, this isn't just grit your teeth in the now because there's a future blessing that is coming. But verse 9, you are receiving, it's present tense. On Trinity Sunday, it's very poignant that we should remember that the work of the Spirit today in the life of believers is to impress on our hearts not just abstract truths about Jesus Christ, but the reality of Jesus Christ. He is real. And by the Spirit, the Spirit makes him real to you. It is not just truth about Jesus. It's an experience of the truth about Jesus. And as you persevere in suffering, and we'll see this next point, you know that. It's impressed upon your heart. You say, I know it's real. Of course, every believer wonders, will that day really come? And will it really be true at that last day? But then your heart rises up within you. You say, yes, I know it's real. I know it's true. I know he's real. He's coming back for me. And I can't wait to see him. The end result of that true joy. In a sermon preached by a man called Richard Sibbs in the 17th century, the 1600s, he wrote this about, or he preached this, about Christ is best. He said, is not marriage better than the contract? I hope it is. Is not home better than absence? To be with Christ is to be at home. Is not triumph better than conflict? But to be with Christ is to triumph over all enemies and to be out of Satan's reach forever. Is not perfection better than imperfection? Here in this world, all is imperfect, but in heaven, there is just perfection. Therefore, heaven is much better than any good now, for all are but shadows here, but there is the reality. What are riches, he says? What are the worm-eaten pleasures of the world? What are the honors of the earth but mere shadows of good? For at the right hand of Christ are pleasures indeed. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to the person who is homesick and you long for home, Christ is your home. He says to the person who is engaged and longs for the consummation, the marriage, he says Christ is the true bridegroom. He says to the person who fights for justice, longing for that day when all evil will be dealt with, he says Christ is the one in whom we have the victory. He says to the person who looks for joy in this world but finds it never satisfies, he said, have you not thought that every appetite, every desire that is unfulfilled this side of heaven will be perfectly fulfilled in heaven, in Christ, who is the prince of heaven? He says that's what it's all about. And that day, when you see him face to face, the one in whom you have trusted now, the one in whom you have put your hope, he said, you will not be disappointed. Such is the wonder of Christ. When you see him face to face, it will make that moment, and as a vicar, I get the privilege of it, of seeing that moment when the bridegroom stands here and he turns around and he sees the bride walking down the aisle. 
and you just see the sheer joy, the pupils dilate, the heart quickens. It is that moment that he's been waiting for. It will make even the most wonderful wedding look like a pale shadow of an imitation when we see Christ face to face. My friends, do you believe that? Is he not altogether lovely? He is the object of true joy, and he is the end result of true joy. He's the one you're waiting for, so cling on to him. Keep clinging on to him. We saw that in the psalm, Psalm 126. They sing about this reality because it's so wonderful and so lovely. Let me now talk finally about the nature of true joy. Sandwiched either side of these two powerful reasons, the object of true joy, verse 8, and the end result of true joy, verse 9, is the nature of true joy with those wonderful words, inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, these have had many sermons on their own, but we'll just look at them in the last few minutes we've got. Why is this joy described as inexpressible and glorious? Well, I think at least, but at least let's pick up on two reasons. It is an inexpressible and glorious joy. There is something inexpressible about it because it's so counterintuitive. This joy for the Christian occurs not in spite of suffering. So again, it's not that I get everything right in my life and then I experience it. No, no, no. This joy is inexpressible because it occurs in the midst of suffering. That's the context. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. He's telling them, verse 6, you're going to have all kinds of trials if you trust in Jesus. And he doesn't say, grit your teeth now, there'll be joy at the future day. He says, there is joy now in the midst of it, even an inexpressible joy. Why? Because the Christian knows what it is to have that counterintuitive reality of joy even when you're facing fiery, difficult, painful trials. As the hymn says, fading is the worldly pleasures, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. We see this in the life of those who have trusted Christ and who have suffered in him. If you read Christian biographies, you'll know this. Um, let me talk of one, Darlene Diebler-Rose, who was a, um, a Christian missionary, and then when the Second World War hit, she was taken off into the Japanese concentration camp, and she was put in solitary confinement. As she walked into the cell which she was being kept in, above the cell was written, this person must die. Everything was stripped away from her, the people she loved, she was in solitary confinement. And in that cell, she said, as she started to weep about the awfulness of her situation, she said immediately the words of a hymn from Sunday school that she'd remembered as a little girl came to her heart. Fear not, little flock, whatever your lot, he enters all rooms, the doors being shut. He never forsakes, he never is gone, so count on his presence from darkness till dawn. Do you see the spirit impressed the reality of Christ upon her, even in the darkness of that cell? And she wrote this afterwards. So tenderly my Lord in that moment wrapped his strong arms of quietness and calm about me. I knew they could lock me in, but they couldn't lock my Lord out. Jesus was there in the cell with me. Many of you know this. In the midst of the hardest moments, the darkest nights you experience, you experience the light of Jesus' presence in your life. It is an extraordinary thing. It is inexpressible. I've experienced it in my life. Um, when bad things have happened, those are the moments when I've been most joyful. It's as though everything's stripped away and you say, Lord, I only have you. And at that moment, he's most precious and therefore the joy is the greatest. And you find yourself in this curious thing as Christians, and people must think we're mad, when you are weeping with sadness and also weeping with joy at the same time, how is that possible? It is inexpressible, is it not? 
Have you experienced something of that? The Lord does not say, I will take you out of trials. The Lord says, I will minister my grace and my joy to you in the midst of trials, which is the most powerful reality. Joy in suffering. Secondly, joy inexpressible. I think the other reason that Peter calls this inexpressible and glorious joy is because he's saying, as well as preachers may try, as well as poets may seek, as much as songs may reach for it, there is something about this that is beyond words. It is inexpressible. It's better than words. And so I'm extremely conscious right now of the poverty of my words. But the joy of Jesus Christ is better than words. That is, it's not just something you know about. It is something you experience, and you can't fully capture it. The psalmist in Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you to taste it, taste it with the faculties of your heart, not just know about Jesus Christ. There are many theologians who know about Jesus Christ, but do not know Jesus Christ. Of course, we must know about him, but we don't know about him for that end result of just knowing things or winning um, an exam or passing a test. We know about Jesus so that we may know Jesus. And the Spirit impresses those things on our hearts and says, this is the reality. This is whom you believe. And the reason that that is so important is that have you not thought that enduring in suffering is ultimately not a battle for the head, but a battle for the heart? The problems with suffering is it's not what you know about suffering. It's the experience of suffering, isn't it? It's that it hurts. It's that when things are taken away from you, they hurt. And so if Christ is not more real to you in those moments than the things that have been taken away. What value is he? Merely convincing yourself of some truths about him will not be enough if they do not impress themselves on your heart such that you can say, he is inexpressibly glorious. For the first few years of my Christian life, by God's grace, I was wonderfully well taught, but I hadn't got this link. And dare I say, this is why at Inspire St. James, our second of three gospel values is engaging the heart. We want the truths of the gospel to be impressed on the heart of every believer, not just things you know about, but things you experience in the power of the Spirit. And we go to great efforts within our Inspire groups to use the real change methodology of Biblical Counseling UK so that we are, of course, handling the Bible correctly, but the end result is not to handle the Bible correctly. That's merely a means. We handle the Bible correctly so that we've got the correct truths to apply and impress upon people's hearts so that we love Jesus more. That's the end result we want. For the first few years of my Christian life, I knew lots of things about Jesus, but I have to confess there was little impact on my heart. And then God, in his grace, decided that a friend of mine who I was very close to would go to glory early. And as she went to glory early, I was left behind mourning her loss, and I just couldn't cope. I didn't know what to do with it because my Christianity was so much in my head and now the reality of my life was so much in my heart. My heart was all over the shop. And then I started to read the Psalms and it was as though reading scripture suddenly went from black and white to technicolor because the Psalms are full of emotion and desires and affections of the heart. The Psalms mourn and lament. The Psalmists bring those mournings and lament before God. The Psalmists rejoice and dance and sing and I thought, I know nothing of this type of Christianity. There's something deeply wrong. And by God's grace and people around me, I've started to work through what it is to know this truth in your heart. Can I ask you, what is your level of expectation of the Christian life? Is it Peter's? Do you notice that Peter 
assumes with believers he hasn't met, he couldn't have met them all because it's to scattered believers across the areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He assumes, though, that it is normative to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Look at verse 8. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He just assumes it will be the case because he says this is normal of every Christian believer. Many believers I encounter have this mantra in the back of their heads, the person who doesn't expect much will never be disappointed. That is not the Christian life. The person who doesn't expect much will never experience inexpressible and glorious joy. And that is what Peter wants you to experience. Have high expectations, not as high as a new creation. We don't see him face to face yet. And of course, it's not like a tap you can turn on and off. The Spirit is like the wind, he blows wherever he chooses, but there will be, there should be times in your life, in the midst usually of suffering, when the precious truth that Jesus is your all in all comes home to you and you say, they've taken everything away from me, and yet I've got him, and so I rejoice. And that is what keeps you going in the midst of suffering. So remember where we started, the object of our joy and the consummation of our joy is Christ. In other words, we don't pursue joy, we pursue Christ and we get joy. And how do we cope in suffering? By Christ being real and precious to you, by that being written on your heart, and then you can endure, experiencing great joy, even in the midst of suffering. I pray that if that's a message you needed to hear right now, that by the Spirit, he would impress that on your heart. And if you're doing fine right now and you're not experiencing suffering, that it would be like a keep safe that's there for you when the day comes, that he would be your all in all. Amen? Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, how we praise you. What a thing it is, this inexpressible and glorious joy. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that even though we don't see him, by the Spirit we love him. We praise you that even though we don't see him now, in the midst of difficulties, we believe in him and that belief will never be put to shame. And that at that last day, when we see him face to face, what joy, what celebration there will be. Help us to experience something of that joy in the now, that we might stand firm in the midst of trials, and that we might live as your elect exiles. To God be the glory. Amen.